please forgive my voice today. It's uh, really not as bad as it sounds, but pray for me that I can make it through this sermon. If you want to stand, we're looking at Genesis 9, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Moses writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine... And he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless and anoint the the preaching and reading of your word now with the presence and power of your spirit that we might hear it and behold Christ in it, that our hearts might be transformed, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of of your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you might have heard this little factoid before, that cockroaches are capable of surviving a nuclear attack. Have you heard that? Anyone? Yeah. Well, I did a bit of reading this last week when I had this idea for the sermon illustration. And indeed, cockroaches are they're resilient little creatures, right? They, they multiply quickly. They're small and good at hiding. They're harder to kill with chemicals than most creepy crawlies, and they eat just about anything. And that might have all led to the popular belief that these resilient little creatures will outlast us all and could even survive, you know, a, a worldwide nuclear apocalypse, the truth, however, is that they, they couldn't, whether by you know, the explosion or the subsequent ionizing radiation released into the air afterward, little to nothing could actually survive the devastation of a nuclear apocalypse. And yet this morning, we do see something similarly stomach-turning and unseemly survive a worldwide apocalypse, don't we? It's not cockroaches. It's the problem of human sin. Human sin is I mean, it's far more resilient than cockroaches and 
more unseemly and dreadful too. And this is our last Sunday, considering the story of Noah and his family, who of course the Lord graciously preserved and rescued from the floods of judgment upon humanity and the earth. And we come now to something of a new world after the flood here. Not entirely unlike the kind of world we saw freshly created back in Genesis 1 and 2. And moreover, Noah is depicted here, something like a, a new Adam who's being recommissioned by God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Noah and his family do precisely that as we see in verses 18 and 19. It says, in many ways, a passage of new beginnings, the new creation and a new Adam. And yet, in, in some unfortunate ways, Noah is far too much like the first Adam. Because along with Noah and his family... The problem of sin also survived the flood. In fact, Noah carries the problem of sin through the flood with him, as does his entire family. And it's disappointing. It's, it's in, in this disappointing and tragic scene that we want to consider together this morning as we continue our trek through Genesis here in chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. As we look at this, I, there are four realities that I want us to see in our passage here. And the first is the reality of sin continuing. Sin continuing. The continuation of human sin. Verses 20 and 21 start the story saying that Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. You know, in, in some uh, important Ways our passage here serves as an echo of the fall we saw back in Genesis 3, doesn't it? There's, there's grievous sin through the wrongful consumption of fruit here. And, and we'll see in a few moments, there's also a curse pronounced upon humanity that will affect all the coming generations. And just as we see a new world here and a new Adam, we also see a new fall. And yet, in some ways, this second fall also differs from the first. We've been revisiting this recurring theme of the cultural mandate in Genesis here, haven't we? And part of what uh, we see humanity was commissioned to do by God was to be fruitful. And indeed, Noah was fruitful here. He was a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And just as we've been commissioned to cultivate and develop culture and beauty and good things in the world, so Noah makes something out of grapes. He makes wine out of grapes, right? And this is obviously years after the flood and it's receding. Uh, making wine is not a, a quick process. Perhaps we should say that making wine also, it's not a bad thing it, in and of itself. It's, it's rather a good thing. The Bible often speaks very positively about wine. Uh, later in uh, Genesis, in Genesis 27, 28, the patriarch Isaac is pronouncing blessing over his son Jacob, and his blessing envisions plenty of grain and wine in the life of his son. Wine being viewed here as a, as a blessing. In the Song of Solomon, one of the praises the bride gives her husband is that his love is better than wine. High praise. Ecclesiastes 9.7, we're encouraged to drink with a joyful heart. Furthermore, uh, wine in the Bible is often used as a symbol of, of redemptive blessing. It's, it's not for nothing that Jesus institutes the sacrament of communion using wine 
as one of the elements. Uh, the new world in the age to come, Amos 9.13 tells us, will be a world wherein new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. Wine is often portrayed very positively in Scripture. And yet the Scriptures also repeatedly warn us against drunkenness as well. Noah's behavior here is, uh, it's, I mean, it's portrayed obviously in a negative light and it serves as a warning to us here as he degrades himself in the sight of his family, right? Nakedness in the Bible, with the exception of nakedness in marriage, is typically portrayed as a shameful and a degrading thing. Noah is seen as shaming himself here, degrading himself here in his drunken stupor. It's, uh, it's not for nothing that you know, Proverbs 21 tells us that wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever's led astray by it is not wise. Indeed, drunkenness, it, it dulls our senses and inhibitions. It loosens our grip on reality. It reduces self-control. It's a dangerous sin and unwise because it often leads to a whole host of other sins and temptations and shameful acts and degrading behaviors, right? Drunkenness often leads to, to all kinds of sexual sin, to all kinds of violence, to all kinds of carelessness, all kinds of bad stewardship. It often leads to, to words that should never be spoken, to actions that should never be taken, to thoughts and feelings that should never be thought or felt. Drunkenness is portrayed in the Bible and here in Genesis 9 in particular, as being sinful and stupid. And the Apostle Paul thus commands us in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Do not get drunk with wine. Right? If, if as Christians, we... we choose to enjoy the freedom that we have, to, to enjoy the, the good gift of wine, Paul says, be careful to do so in a way that does not lead to drunkenness, right? And for some of us, of course, the, the temptation to, to drunkenness might be far too strong if we engage in, in, in that particular liberty, and so we should not drink wine or strong drink at all, but, but for those of us who do, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, do not get drunk with wine. And it's really interesting because instead, the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us what we should do instead, right? He gives us the negative command there, but it's coupled with a positive command that shows us what we should do. Instead, he says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't fill yourself with wine to the point of drunkenness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit's presence instead. Don't fill your body with excessive amounts of wine. Instead, fill your body with the Holy Spirit. Fill your life with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you wonder what that looks like. He goes on to say what a Holy Spirit-filled life is, is comprised of. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. It's just a continuation of the same command. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit instead of filled with wine? How do you pursue the Spirit-filled life rather than a wine-filled life? Paul says, by imbibing of the worshiping and communal life of God's people together. Right. And, and doing that you will 
you will in some ways be guarded against the, the grievous sin of drunkenness, right? He says, instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you do that by gathering with God's people and singing with God's people and listening to the word of God together with God's people and walking with one another in life in submission to one another and in service to one another and in deference to one another, all with this heart that is set on glorifying God and gratitude and thanksgiving. That's how you pursue the spirit-filled life and that's how you might be guarded against sins of drunkenness and all kinds of sins and follies. Yet we should also be careful to say here that while pursuing that kind of spirit-filled life, and walking with God and his people in that way can and will help to guard us against sins of drunkenness and all sorts of sins and follies. We should be careful to say that no one among us will be entirely free from sin's pull and temptation in life on this side of the veil. Right? Indeed, a man as great as Noah, a man that's better than me, and probably better than you too. He's probably a better man than most of us. He's a man that the Lord used mightily. He was a man who, Genesis 6, 8, was given the Lord's favor. He was a man, Genesis 6, 9, who was righteous and blameless in his generation. Who can say that? He was a man, Genesis 8, 20, who worshiped the Lord with sacrifice and humble reverence. He was a man, 2 Peter 2.5, who was a preacher of righteousness. He was a man who, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, who condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, Hebrews 11.7. He was a man who, when Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, seeks to list three of the most righteous men who have ever walked the face of this earth, is named along with Daniel and Job. That Noah still sinned and fell and degraded himself. Friends, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks they stand take heed lest they fall. Don't ever think that you are so strong or so far in the process of sanctification that sin cannot take you down. Better men and women than you and me have succumbed to grievous temptations and wrecked their lives and their families as a result. Don't ever think that you are so strong that you are not in desperate need of God's help and grace, utterly hopeless without his presence. Don't ever think that as the Christian life goes on and you get older, like Noah here, that temptation will at some point subside and, and the fight against sin will be easier. It won't. Don't let your guard down. Sin and temptation, it continues through the flood here, through onto Noah's, into Noah's old age, and it continues today into ours. We're not above it. But then as we ought to know, sin, sin never takes place in a vacuum. Sin always affects the world, it affects others, it begets wounds and begets sins, more sins and temptations, it hurts and affects families and communities, and that's certainly the case here. 
as we look next at sin compounding. Picking up in, in, in verse 22, we see that, that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, admittedly, this episode gets a little strange here, doesn't it? Um, I mean, it would be really strange for any adult son to see his father in such a state. Let's just be honest about that. But the issue here goes beyond Ham just walking in on his drunken and exposed father. The, the word translated as saw here. Ham saw the nakedness of his father. This word communicates something more than just, you know, catching a glimpse and moving on. In fact, we should say that, that the fact that Ham walked in on his exposed father may not have been his fault in the first place. Can't always help what your eyes see can't always help what you happen upon in the moment. But Ham didn't just see his father exposed here and then move on with his day. This word translated as saw here carries with it a sense of, of gazing and inspecting and watching and giving ongoing attention to something. In fact, oddly enough, some scholars think that there might have been some element of sexual perversion going on here with this use of the word saw. Now, I, I don't think that's the case, mainly because it seems that Ham goes on to try to make something of a spectacle of his father to his brothers. And so it, it seems to me here that Ham's sin is that he sees and watches, humorously watches, and makes a spectacle of his father here for the purpose of amusement. He's making his father and his father's sin and shame the, the butt of his joke, right? When, when witnessing the, the sins and shortcomings of his father, Ham doesn't treat his father with respect, but with ridicule. And, and you know, this is important to pause here for a moment. This is portrayed to us as a grievous sin, perhaps even more grievous than Noah's, because part of what God expects of us as his image bearers is that we treat our parents with respect and honor, right? The fifth commandment, Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother. And, and, and that's a command that has no expiration date, right? It, it applies to us all our lives long, even into adulthood, even though we may obey, uh, need to obey it differently in adulthood than we do in childhood, right? But but it's a, it's a command that has no expiration date, even into adulthood. And furthermore, it, it also becomes quite, quite a complicated command to apply when we start considering it in the face of parental sins. Right? That's, that's the, the kind of context in which we're looking at this here now. There, there are all sorts of ways that respect and honor need to be teased out and applied in the face of the sins of parents, which is an issue we all have to wrestle with here, right? Ham's experience of witnessing and seeing the sin of his father is not unique, because newsflash, if you have human parents, you have sinful parents, right? Right? You have parents whose sins you have witnessed and even been on the receiving end of, undoubtedly, if, if you have human parents. But I also want to look at this now because we also live in a time and place in human history wherein we are increasingly prone and apt to disregard and disrespect our parents. I mean, it's not uncommon for you to hear, even among Christians, 
People speak about their parents. It's not not uncommon for you to hear even Christians talk about their parents as if their parents are complete morons, not to be taken seriously, not respected, revered, or honored. And sometimes we might even try to justify talking about our parents in disrespectful ways because of their sin or folly or hypocrisy or whatever else. And indeed, let's just say this from the outset, there are some parental sins so grievous that they might merit cutting ties or a certain type of disregard, but that's the exception, not the rule. As a norm, we're always to treat our parents with respect and dignity, not ridicule, even when it comes to their sin. Noah's sin here didn't make it right for Ham to do this. Parental sins don't make it right for us to treat our parents with disrespect and disregard. You can see a good picture of what honoring parents in the face of their sin can look like. Jim and Japh, or Shem and Japheth here. What did they do? They don't join in on Ham's ridicule. They go instead to, to cover up their father, to cover up his nakedness, even when he was naked because of his sin, even when he had shamed and degraded himself. They honored their father, even in his sin. And you know, I, I know that's a very specific example of what honoring your parents in the face of their sin might look like. Hopefully you never have to experience anything particularly like this. It might make it hard then for us to maybe consider what honoring our parents might look like in our individual families and situations and whatnot. So perhaps we should just draw out a principle here to help us think through what it might look like for us. I think it'd be this. We should treat and talk about our parents' sins in the same way that we'd want our children to talk about ours. We should treat and talk about our parents' sins in the same way that we'd want our children to talk about ours. You know, many, many of you have kids. Some of, some of you don't. It shouldn't be too hard to imagine, though. How would you want your children to treat and talk about you and your sins and follies and shortcomings? That's how you should treat and talk about your parents and their sins. However, we see some, some application here, not just in terms of our relationships with our parents, but also in our relationships with one another as well as a church which is important to discuss because in addition to living in a time and place where parental disrespect is common, we also live in a time and place where exposing the sins and shortcomings of others is is almost like a form of entertainment, right? The the sins of others, just talked about so freely on the internet sometimes. It shouldn't be that way in God's church. Indeed, there, there are times wherein we need to rebuke one another and confront one another, speaking the truth in love and gentleness. That's clear in Scripture. There are times where correcting one another might be needed. There are also times wherein, you know, particularly heinous and public sins need to be addressed publicly, such as in cases of church discipline or when crimes have been committed or something like that. Those sorts of things do happen at times and need to be addressed properly in churches like ours. There are texts that that commend and command such. Then there are also texts that commend and command different sorts of approaches to addressing the sins of others as well. We need wisdom to understand what kind of approach might be needed at times, but we can think of 
places like 1 Peter 4, 8, which says that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? It means that when there is love present, there are a lot of different kinds of sins that we're to just overlook and forget about. There there are a multitude of sins that might not merit rebuke, might not merit exposure, but simply need to be overlooked and forgotten. Kind of like Shem and Japheth do here with Noah. Not every sin needs to be disciplined in the church. Every sin needs to be confronted. Not every sin needs to be formally rebuked. If that were the case, that's, that's all we'd be doing around here. Now, some sins are better covered and overlooked and forgotten about. We're also encouraged to approach the sins of saints older to us in a particular way as well. You look at 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor, Timothy, and he says in verses 1 and 2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's a particular command to a pastor here to not rebuke those in the church that are older than him. And of course, that can and ought to be more widely applied to all of us as well. So that if any of us witness the sins of those ahead of us in years in the church, we don't come out with guns blazing, right? We, We don't even rebuke them, Paul says. Rather, We approach them with gentleness and respect and deference and and approach them instead with encouragement, he says. And in fact, Paul shows us here that that posture of encouragement is to be the posture we take with everyone in the church, older and younger men, older and younger women, all all are to be encouraged as fathers and brothers, sisters and mothers, right? Rebuke and correction might be necessary sometimes particularly toward our peers or saints who are younger. But, but, but that should never, Paul says here, be our automatic posture, our default posture toward one another. Even in the face of each other's sins and shortcomings ought to be encouragement and help and support in the fight against sin. So that even as sin continues, it might not compound in our households and in the church and in our city. As we move on in the story then, we, we move on to not just see sin continuing and compounding, Sin again, cursing. Sin cursing. Back in Genesis 3, sin led to a curse being pronounced upon God's good creation. And now with Noah as a new Adam in the second fall, another curse is pronounced. Now, a curse being pronounced here is obviously coming from the lips of Noah. But I think we'll see here that, that there's a divine weight behind Noah's words. In fact, I think we should be prepared to say that Noah's words are are a prophecy. They go on to shape and form the destiny of coming generations and nations. Look at verses 24 and 25 here. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, it, it doesn't say how Noah became aware of what Ham had done, but in some way Noah learned of it. And when he does, he pronounces this this prophetic curse. And, And interestingly, it's not on Ham, but on Ham's son Canaan. 
And Moses, as, as, as already told us twice, Ham was the father of Canaan. He seems for us, he really wants to emphasize that, you know? And if you know much about the biblical story, that's how it's going to develop from here, you'll know why. Canaan would go on to be the father of those who dwelled in the land of Canaan, known as the Canaanites. And they have a, a specific role to play in the coming um, narrative of redemptive history. Now, it's not exactly clear as to what prompted this curse to be spoken over Canaan and not Ham here. It's rather mysterious, but people have speculated. Perhaps it's, it's because of the fact that Ham sinned against Noah as a son, that Noah pronounced the curse upon a son of Ham. Or perhaps since God had already pronounced a divine blessing over Noah's three sons in our last passage, maybe Noah didn't see how he could pronounce a curse over Ham like this, who, one who had already been blessed by God. Some say that perhaps Canaan in, uh, participated in Noah's humiliation along with Ham. The reason is not really stated here. Whatever the reason, though, we do know that the Canaanite people did go on to, in many ways, carry on with the depraved and debased character of their father, Ham. Right, as the biblical story goes on, we, we find in the following books of the Bible that the Canaanites were a barbaric nation on the whole. They, they were a people of great violence and of sexual predation. They murdered and sacrificed children and exploited the weak and vulnerable. And so the nation of Israel would later go on to be commissioned by God to be ministers of his wrath against the Canaanites. And so Noah's prophecy would have been particularly relevant then to the original audience of Genesis here. Remember that Moses is writing... Uh, this book to an Israel in the wilderness getting ready to make their way into the promised land where they were to root out the wickedness and evil of peoples there. And, and a prophecy such as this would have helped to make sense of the calling laid upon the nation of Israel as they heard it and learned of what they were being called to do to the peoples there, including the Canaanites. Now with that, this very passage has been used in church history in atrocious and appalling ways. And this exact passage here has been used in the past, both here in America, to justify the enslavement of people descending from the continent of Africa, as well as justification for the apartheid in South Africa. Right, the prophecy of, of Canaan being a servant of servants to Japheth was used by some in church history who confessed the name of Christ to justify peoples of African descent being enslaved by those of European descent, since Japheth's line can be traced to people of European descent. And let's just call this what it is. It's heresy. It's a heresy. And I, I, don't, I don't use that word lightly or throw it around often, but this, that teaching is heresy. It's a morally reprehensible justification for morally reprehensible acts. But additionally, it doesn't even make sense of the text. For one, this prophecy wasn't even made about the sons of Ham who dispersed to and dwelled in Africa. Some of Ham's sons did indeed disperse into Africa and, and dwelled and multiplied there, but Noah's words here don't concern them, do they? They concern Canaan, who did not disperse to and dwell in Africa. Furthermore, this prophecy fulfilled already in the book of Joshua. And ergo has no lasting application 
to how descendants of the Canaanite peoples are to be treated today. It was a prophecy that's already been fulfilled to enact God's will at a specific time among a specific people in redemptive history. It has no direct application for us today as Christians or as Westerners at all. So by way of application then, we should just recognize here something sobering, something enormously important. We have to be extremely careful and reverent in our reading and interpretation of Scripture. The Scriptures are, are, are God's Word. They come with His authority. They are perfect and pure and without error, and yet as readers and interpreters of Scripture, we are not. And because of that, human beings have often been guilty of twisting God's Word to try to make it say what we wanted to say in trying to justify and authorize wicked and vile actions by claiming divine blessing upon them. You know, C.S. Lewis, who once said that, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst, right? Partly because religious bad men often claim divine blessing upon and the authorization of God's word for their evil. So much abuse and sexual deviancy, and violence, and domineering behavior have been justified in the name of divine authority and the word of God without ever having a lick of biblical warrant. And so in light of that, we ought to be extremely careful that we come to God's word with a posture of humility and submission to it. We ought to, to come under God's word and let it direct and guide us, not stand over it in order to direct and guide it to say and justify whatever we want because the consequences can be astronomic. That principle applies here also to the way we read and interpret sin's curse pronounced by Noah in Genesis 9. But then lastly, Noah not only pronounces a curse here, but a blessing as well. And this blessing is also prophetic as it points us toward not only the fact that, that sin's curse continues and compounds as we've seen in our passage here, but also of God's blessing and grace continuing and compounding as well. Verses 26 and 27, pick it up here. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. You might notice there that in this blessing of Noah, he actually starts by just blessing and worshiping the name of the Lord. He says, blessed be the Lord. And then he calls the Lord the God of Shem, right? And in that, he shows that, that Shem here it's going to carry on the seed of the woman. That Shem, like his father and like Enoch before him, he is going to walk with and worship the one true and living God. Noah's God will be Shem's God. And something also stands out to us about Japheth's blessing as well. He says, may God enlarge Japheth, meaning may he may also be fruitful and multiply, may his house increase, Right? But as for Japheth and his descendants, Noah says, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. In other words, he, he wants Japheth and his descendants in those nations that are being dispersed and descending from him 
to also share in the blessing of Shem and his descendants, of belonging to and trusting in and walking with the one true and living God. And of course, you only need to read on into the next two chapters to see how this blessing plays out here. Because in the, in the line of Shem, in Genesis 12, a descendant named Abram is going to be picked out and chosen by God. And Abram is picked out and chosen by God to be a recipient and a channel of all of God's covenant promises and blessings. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord will make some, some great and gracious promises to Abram, promising to bless him and his descendants. But what's more is that, as, as Paul puts it in Galatians 3, 8, in Genesis 12, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, all the nations of the world, all the peoples that are going to be dispersed from Shem and Ham and Japheth here are going to be blessed through the family and descendants of Abram who belongs to the family of Shem, who is a descendant of Shem. And of course, at this time in history, we, we know precisely how God intended to bless the world through the family of Shem and the family of Abraham. If you look at the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, you will see that Jesus of Nazareth was a son of Noah and a son of Shem and a son of Abraham, the one in whom all blessings or all nations would be blessed. And Jesus himself is the very fulfillment of that promise. And indeed, we need that promise to be fulfilled because all of us, all of us from every nation, and every tribe and every people, every individual, all of us are actually under the curse of sin. All of us are, in fact, enslaved to sin. It's not just Canaan and his descendants here, right? Jesus told us in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is under its guilt. Everyone who sins is under its power and mastery. Everyone who sins deserves to be under God's curse and judgment. And yet Jesus has come that a people from every nation might instead dwell in the tents of Shem and share in his blessing of walking with and knowing God. Jesus has come to give us freedom. Jesus has come to give us the freedom of forgiveness. He's come to give us the freedom over the power of sin. He's come to give us freedom from life under God's curse and judgment. And he's done that by living a life free of sin himself. And yet still going to the cross there to die under God's curse and judgment. So that by his cross, we who deserve God's curse and judgment might instead receive his blessing and forgiveness. Here's the really good news about that. This free gift it's available to all, to anyone from any nation, 
from any family, from any people, from any place, any and all who would turn away from sin and place their faith and trust in Christ Jesus can receive his blessing, receive his life, receive his freedom. And that's why now the resurrected Christ himself has commissioned us to go forth in Matthew 28 and make disciples of all nations to all the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth, pronouncing the blessing of God to them, preaching the gospel of God to them, inviting all to come and share in God's benevolent goodness and to enjoy this reality. While in this wicked world, Sin still continues. Sin still compounds. To enjoy this reality that the grace of God still abounds and abounds and abounds to peoples from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. It abounds to us this morning as a people of God. Even though we, like Noah, continue to meet with temptation and do indeed give in to temptation far too often, we still struggle on in this fight against this pesky, resilient foe, this, this foe that makes it through apocalypses and on into our old age. We can rejoice in knowing that God's grace is greater and more resilient still. And that one day, when Christ returns for us, his grace will invade this whole earth, vanquishing the problem of sin once and for all, undoing the curse so that his grace and blessing will indeed outlive the problem of sin and the curse. And his blessing will ever continue. And his grace will always abound on into eternity. Human sin for now continues and compounds, but God's grace abounds and it will forever. 